The statements and views expressed on the Voices in Vulnerability podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of Emory University School of Law or its affiliates. Welcome to Voices in Vulnerability, where we interview the scholars shaping vulnerability theory in the legal world and beyond. In honor of Women's History Month, we are focusing on the contributions of the Feminism and Legal Theory Project. Today, we'll be speaking about Transcending the Boundaries of Law, Generations of Feminism and Legal Theory, published in 2010. I am your host, Mangala Kanesan. Today, I'm grateful to have Professor Risa Lieberwitz back on the show as my guest. Welcome back, Professor Lieberwitz. Thank you very much. Risa L. Lieberwitz is a professor of labor and employment law in the Cornell University School of Industrial and Labor Relations. She is an associate in the Worker Institute at Cornell and a co-director of the Cornell University Law and Society Minor. Thank you again for coming back to the show. Really well, nice it's a real pleasure to be back. Thank you. Can you start off with telling me a little bit about transcending the boundaries of law? Could you just situate it in time and in the academic environment that existed at the time? Sure. Yeah, this is a really fascinating volume. It's one that is dealing with the past in terms of the development of feminism and legal theory and marking the 25th anniversary of that project. And it's also looking at the moment of the writing of the volume and then looking towards the future to say, how is it that we can understand the struggles of feminism and legal theory that have been addressed in the past? How do we understand where we are? And how do we understand through that language of transcending boundaries? How do we look toward the future in a way that I view as a kind of a progressive project? Say, how are we not bounded by the, um, the barriers and the structures that try to constrain progressive development. That's the overall vision that I have of it. And it's a very rich volume. I certainly think that looking back at that volume from today, today's moment, is quite fascinating because it gives a bit more than a decade of time to evaluate what the project of the volume was, what the specific issues were that the various contributors were grappling with and the ways in which those chapters were both connecting with the ongoing struggles and attempting to say, how do we move towards a vision of a society in which feminist principles can be used outside the boundaries of law to make law itself a more progressive project. What was the academic environment like at the time that this book was written? Well, I think in 2010, you know, we can see that certainly, uh, you know, feminist theory, because of all the work that had been done through the Feminism and Legal Theory Project and other feminist endeavors and critical race theory that had been going on and critical legal theory generally, that um, 
issues of feminism in the law had made their way into the academy in a way that uh, was very uh, a positive development so that the academy itself had moved beyond simply uh, a place that was completely unfriendly to feminism that said what does this have to do with the law uh, you know what is it that um, that feminism is asking so there was more of an integration perhaps even more of an assimilation into the academy itself and yet within the academy and now focusing more on law, the role of feminist principles were still struggling and grappling with many of the same issues because the law itself is so difficult to change that those uh, strictures and structures of law that create, create barriers to um, to bringing feminist principles into fundamental understandings of the law were still in place. And of course, in 2010, um, we also have, you know, a period where from the Reagan era on in the United States, the kind of neoliberal theory and the neoliberal uh, vision of the world had embedded itself into society in a strong way that was that creates renewed barriers to feminism and feminist principles to come in and, and critique the law as well as try to change it. So in so to summarize then in many ways, you know, I think feminism, feminist principles, the presence of women and people of color in the academy had improved at the same time that we have the, the ongoing inequalities in the academy that reflect the inequalities outside the academy that were then reinforced with liberalism and neoliberalism and its, its, its renewal, its resurgence since the 1980s. What were the motivations behind writing the book? What did the authors want to contribute? What did they want to change? Well, I don't think there is a, a singular answer to that. One of the things that's so fascinating about the book is the scope that's covered, right? Looking at various institutions through the lens of feminist legal theory, what it's accomplished, what's left to be accomplished, what are the, the directions it can go in. So we're looking at the various institutions in society. There's the, the family, clearly that's part of that. There's the political system. There's the system of law itself, the economic system, which encompasses the workplace, the questions of the ongoing impact of the public-private distinction in society, um, and, and the various institutions that affect women and men and um, our vision of gender and race and how those work together. So it, the, the book is an ambitious project that covers the many institutions that intersect with the law. So in many ways, you can read the book and say, oh, each of the authors has a different contribution. But I think that when you step back 
and say, well, what is the project of the book itself? The way that I think about it is that there are the stages from the earliest development of the feminism and legal theory project to say, what are the boundaries of law and how can feminist analysis of the law enter into the academy in law schools and in legal analysis of the law? How can those principles enter into the legal practice so that uh, ideas of feminism and, and feminist analysis can also have an impact on the courts and on advocacy to the courts? analyze what that's done, and then where can we go? So the barriers, the boundaries that had existed have been, let's say, reached to some extent, and those are acknowledged in this volume, to say that notions of formal equality certainly have been important in bringing in feminist ideas into the law, both in terms of how it's practiced, how it's decided by courts, and how it's studied in the academy. And formal equality, a notion of men and women should be treated the same, has been an important, uh, an important development, certainly. But it's still then recognized as being inadequate because it simply imposes equality within an unequal system. Prior to this volume being written that we're, we're discussing today in, in 2010, certainly the critique of formal equality was well-developed. And much of that was critiqued in terms of saying substantive equality needs to be brought in so that we look at the way in which treating, for example, men and women similarly and getting a particular job does not recognize all of the inequalities that must be addressed, uh, whether it's with regard to the family, the relationship between the family and the workplace, uh, inequalities in terms of, of wealth and distribution of wealth and power in society. If those stay in place, then formal equality simply uh, is an assimilation model that allows certain people, certain women to be assimilated into the male standard. So we need more substantive equality in terms of wealth and distribution of wealth and power in society, uh, distribution of roles that um, are not based on gender and are not based on race. So there's certainly that critique that was also well-developed by the time that this volume was written. I think what this volume is trying to do is to say, how can we have a vision of society that transcends certainly both that assimilationist sort of formal equality model, but that also takes a notion of substantive equality and broadens it out to a more universal vision of what equality would mean in a society that is not simply based on unequal structures that are in place. And so this volume very much is 
a treatment of that question of a universality of the human condition that provides the foundation for the vulnerability theory work that Martha Feynman has engaged in and that became the Vulnerability and Human Condition Project to say, how do we take feminist principles and say they apply universally? They're not simply principles to create a certain type of equality between men and women and a certain type of equality uh, with regard to racial equality. But to say, how do we create gender and racial equality that reflects a universal sort of um, equality and universal way in which people can have a good life and where we redistribute wealth and power in society so that those divisions that have existed in terms of gender and race and economic class can be transcended into a, a society where we all individually and collectively can flourish. And then of course, there's the question, how do we do that? Right, so um, how do we do that is also re-envisioning the law. That's where the role of the state comes in as well, right? The state has a positive role and must have a positive role to enable us to move to that sort of society where there is human flourishing through the redistribution of wealth and power in society. And the state's role in a democratic society, which is democratic politically as well as economic, the state must have a role in the language of vulnerability theory, the state must have a role to be responsive to the human lived human condition. So have you found that anything has changed since this book was published? Well, you know, we've lived through, uh, since this was published, the world has lived through some very difficult times. The US has lived through some very difficult times politically as has the rest of the world. Um, you know, speaking about these sorts of issues at this very moment, where over the last year, we've been living through a pandemic that's ongoing. We've been living through, um, in the United States, you know, the, the four years of the Trump administration, and now we're just coming out of that with the Biden administration, and we see across the, you know, the globe various ways in which right-wing political um, regimes in places like Brazil and Hungary, um, the, the right-wing government in, um, in the UK. And we, we've seen just really discouraging times. And then if you mark it back to, you know, the Reagan era and the, as I was discussing earlier, you know, the neoliberalism that's taken hold and that, you know, has really laid the groundwork for these kinds of right-wing regimes. It's, it's a very discouraging moment 
in many ways to ask, you know, where are we compared to 2010? Right? Where are we? I think in 2010, there was probably, you know, in, in some ways, perhaps a, a greater hopefulness that existed. And under the Biden administration, looking at the United States right now, I think that, you know, there's a real welcome return to looking at the state as being more responsive to human needs and to try to undo some of the uh, damage that was done under the, the Trump administration. Though the Trump administration is not alone, certainly responsible for neoliberalism, which, you know, which really took hold from Reagan on. So in that context, where we have so little human contact now under the pandemic, to ask about how we can have a state that responds to human flourishing is a very, um, one could say a singular moment to ask that question. So in certain ways, I can say, well, it's, it's discouraging. We're looking at undoing a lot of damage that's been done. We're looking at increased inequality economically. We're looking at increased suffering that comes from that economic inequality. Uh, we're looking at a US Supreme Court in the United States that has moved to the right in very severe ways given the politics that we've just lived through. So one's hope for the law has to be tempered by the reality we're living in. On the other hand, I think that the theoretical developments uh, that have been ongoing since this volume was published in 2010, the, those theoretical developments are very positive and very progressive. This notion of looking at the material world in ways that recognize the realities of those relationships. The feminist principles that insist on the understanding of very literally the embodiment of people's existence in the world and saying the law must respond to the body of women and men um, and uh, individuals and the fluidity of gender, the way in which racial relationships affect uh, where we live in society the insistence on that, I think, continues to be very, very important. And then the vision of a society in which we grapple with how to restructure our institutions, our political relationships, the relationship of the state to individuals and groups, that that continued theoretical development is a very positive thing. I think that we also see uh, an interest, certainly being a, a professor, I see interest by students to organize, undergraduate students, graduate students to organize in different ways to say that students are yearning for a more progressive society as well. So I, I then become more of the optimist to say, all the theoretical development that's continued, the development of vulnerability theory that I've been involved with as well, and that Martha Pyman, of course, has been a leader in, that that's been a very positive way to 
bring academics together and to say, how do we analyze a legal system that's been based very much on a discrimination model and to say, of course, we need to rid ourselves of discrimination that uh, creates divisions and um, that reinforces inequalities. How do we understand that? And then say, how do we move towards a, a positive agenda that again, will enable us to create a more universal system of redistributing wealth and power so that individuals and groups can flourish within that society. How do theoretical developments and these different academic analyses, how do they move into policy? How do they become policy? It's a very, very good question. And I don't think that we have the magic answer, right? There's this old joke about um, somebody who's a violinist uh, looking for Carnegie Hall and he lost in New York City and he stops somebody and he says, how do I get to Carnegie Hall? And the person answers by saying, practice, practice. <laughs> so I, I thought of that old joke when you asked the question, right? it's through practice. And what is the meaning of practice? And I guess people use the term praxis to, to say, how do we move in a way towards taking our theory and moving it into practice. How do we do that? Um, and I'm a big believer that good theory is necessary for good practice. And that good practice then enables us to uh, reevaluate our theory and make it uh, more steeped in the reality of practice. So just as we saw the important struggles that were made by uh, advocates at that time, like um, uh, Ruth Ginsburg, who then became Justice Ginsburg, and the very important work that she and other advocates and advocates and jurists did to move formal equality into legal practice, which was unheard of at the time. You know, the jurists, the judges didn't even understand what the problem was. Just as that theory moved into practice and then a notion of substantive equality moved into practice to say, well, we have to actually look at practices that may not be intentionally discriminatory, but have an impact that's discriminatory and the law must address that, for example, through Title VII disparate impact theory, not just disparate treatment. So we saw those theoretical understandings moving into practice we then have to ask, how do we not become so mired in the successes of formal equality and some successes of substantive equality? Um, ideas about affirmative action also moving us forward in substantive equality to say, how do we take positive measures that look at inequalities? How do we not stop at those successes and say, how can we then move into our theory of understanding a real need for restructuring in ways that then are represented in the law. That is the big project and that is the big difficulty because restructuring fundamental inequalities is difficult and it's always been difficult. And that's where I think the relationship to the political system also comes in. 
Now this volume that we're discussing of transcending the boundaries of law addresses all of those questions and it brings in the political system as well. So the law itself must be connected and is connected of course to the political system. How can the political system itself create the statutes and amend the statutes and make them better that we're working with today so that the theoretical vision of improving the human condition can become more, re more real through the political system. And then the judicial structures and the administrative agency structures that interpret those laws also start to represent the theoretical movements toward a more responsive state. And this is where organizing comes in, right? Social movements has, have always been from the ground up where those legal changes in, in statutes and then the response by the judiciary to statutory changes to different interpretations of the US constitution as an example. Those changes in the political and legal system have always come through the groundwork, the grassroots work of social movement organizing. They don't just happen spontaneously. So as theoreticians, as academics who are doing legal theory, I think we must be connected to social movements as well. And I've always thought of myself as a, a scholar activist. It could be scholar slash activist. It could just be scholar activist. It could be activist scholar. These are not separate notions. These are integrated notions in my view that again, good theory comes from good practice and creates good practice and the good practice feeds back into the theory. So if we are theorizing about embodiment, if we are theorizing about understanding the way that the law affects people on the ground and how what, what, what human conditions need to be addressed through the law, then we should be not only understanding social movements, but we should be connected to them so that our theory can also inform social movements. Our social movements can inform our theory. And then all of that can make for better politics, um, greater representation in our political bodies of people from all backgrounds, you know, gender, race, class, uh, ethnicity, you know, all of those representations that are needed to then have the state be able to respond to the human needs that then can lead to our restructuring our institutions to be more democratic and more responsive. And the state there being one that can help to nurture those positive relationships and those positive institutions. That's a big project, but we have to uh, think about the reforms that can move us toward those projects. But if that's the vision, our reforms will put us on the right path. So this book was published a couple years after the Vulnerability and Human Condition Initiative was officially founded. 
Do you see anything in the book showing that movement into more vulnerability theory? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it was really not only laying the groundwork for the further development of vulnerability theory, but laying out the, um, the basic principles, the basic understandings, the, um, the analytical structure for vulnerability, vulnerability theory, which brings in the principles and the understandings developed in the feminism and legal theory project to again move to saying, how can we move beyond legal structures that have been, that represent prog progress, but that can also create boundaries just moving to that more universal understanding of a society that, that responds to human need. Um, and again, looking once again at the book, I was impressed with the way in which various scholars in the book were really grappling with that. Because we have to maintain our focus on the reality of inequalities, understand the way in which um, inequalities based on discriminatory categories are a reality that continue to exist. But how do we also think about uh, having organizing being done in ways in which we have um, organizing that's multiracial, that is multi-gendered in, in the broader way we understand gender, that says, how do we come together to actually move to a society that is more equal in a, in a way that moves beyond formal equality that, um, that takes substantive equality and makes it even uh, deeper and broader. So I think that it's a book that's grappling with those issues and that launches very much a discussion of those issues that have then developed more and more in the vulnerability theory project. We're over time now and I don't wanna keep you for too long. Is there anything else that you'd like to say about the book? Well, I certainly commend it to people to read. You know, I think what happens oftentimes is that, you know, we're all keeping up with the things that are coming out, the latest uh, books, the latest articles. And of course we wanna do that, but it is a very interesting and I think enlightening uh, sort of thing to do to go back and say, let me look at, the, at what was published about a decade ago to mark a certain moment and ask, how do I read it now? And how does it remind me of the discussions that were going on at the time? And from the vantage point that I'm living in at the moment, how do I understand it? And how do I mark where we are today? What ideas were controversial at the time the volume was published in 2010, which are more accepted in theoretical discussions now? I think it's a very, very enlightening thing to do. And I certainly hope that people um, take the time to take a look at the, the volume again. What would you like listeners to remember about our interview today? Well, I hope that the interview ignites or reignites an issue into looking at these theoretical questions of feminism, feminist principles, uh, the way in which our theory should always remain dynamic 
that, that as we develop our principles and we have insights and we build our, our principles and our theories, that those insights should always be dynamic. And we should always be looking to how to develop them in a way that are even more positive and, and useful for ourselves and for others to move towards a vision of what a society should look like. Thank you again for being here today. Thank you so much. It was a great pleasure. This has been an episode of Voices and Vulnerability. You can find a link to the book we discussed, Transcending the Boundaries of Law, Generations of Feminism and Legal Theory, in the episode description on SoundCloud. If you like what you heard here, you can find us on Twitter at VHC Initiative and on Facebook at Vulnerability and the Human Condition. Thanks for tuning in.